tonight, all the, all the adults are Christian, and the same as it was uh, last week, we've been varying the study, depending on who was here. And last week we started a subject that we'll go ahead and conclude tonight, and that is the, the uh, importance of and the how of presenting the Christian message to people that are not Christian. And one thing we noted in the introduction last week is that the vast majority of people that make a profession of Christianity will go their entire life and never lead a single solitary person to Christ. Uh, if those of you that have been in the church for how many years, I mean, think of the congregation and think of the people there. I'm talking about even the people that come regularly. And if you were brought up in a church or someone, think of how many actually, although they come to all the services, that you will never experience seeing an individual outside of their family. In other words, they may lead their children. I'm not saying that. They may lead their children, although we, we don't lead a great percentage of them. But they may lead their children to Christ, but actually outside of leading a mate or their children will actually lead somebody else uh, to a belief in Christ. Uh, the majority of, of all the congregations will go their entire life and simply not do that. Uh, not only that, the, a very sizable percent of those who profess Christianity will actively never do much more than come into a service on Sunday. And, and that's it. And so the, the, when we look at getting the message out and we think in terms of the numbers of those that profess Christianity, it's somewhat misleading because only a very small percent are, are actively engaged in some way of, of trying to actually get the message out. Now, we looked at it first from the standpoint that this is unusual because when we consider its importance, Jesus made it very clear in his teaching that there's absolutely nothing more important that a follower of his could do than to lead another person into a right relationship with God. I mean, there's just a, I don't know how he could have emphasized it any more than he did. He spent so much time associating with sinners. He was criticized for it. Uh, he looked at himself as a physician that was here to seek and to save the lost. And then we noted that at the conclusion of the Gospels, the last orders that he gave to his apostles was to, to get out and, and go into all the world and preach that message. And the interesting thing is that it was so important that he already t he told them in advance that they were going to be despised, persecuted, uh, members of their own family would turn against them, there would be division in their own family, and he told them they would go to their death eventually. Remember he told Peter that he had a horrible death to look forward to, and he made the others very aware of the fact that, that suffering was there. And so despite the cost, and he even said that you would have to pick up your cross and follow me, you would have to give up your life in order to have it and all. And despite that cost, it, it still went out. Uh, I would suggest to you to begin with that one reason, we talked about the various reasons that we don't, uh, or I should say the various reasons we're not more active in getting the message out, is it's probably the most difficult thing of all we've been asked to do. I mean, let's be honest, what difficulty really is involved in getting up on Sunday morning and going to a building and singing some songs and having some fellowship and studying the Bible and listening to a sermon? I mean, that uh, actually, if you're a, have any real belief, it seems to me that would be an enjoyable type thing. Uh, I don't even, I would even question the conversion of somebody that didn't enjoy being around other Christians and praising God and, and having prayer and, and studying his word and all. So that's, it's an enjoyable type thing. 
uh, we make a big deal about partaking of the Lord's Supper on a regular basis. And uh, we meet every first day of the week. But again, uh, there's not a high difficulty factor there. We, we do it out of our belief and everything like that. But there's not really a lot of difficulty that's involved in, in partaking of uh, uh, a couple of emblems and thinking about it in advance, the meaning and all. There's not a lot of difficulty involved in either having or not having a piano. And, and there's not a lot of difficulty involved in doing a number of the things that we feel obligated to do and, and really put emphasis on it. But when it comes to this, I don't know of anything that was more emphasized than this but it also has the highest difficulty factor. And, and so uh, the, what we emphasized last week was the, the importance of it that Christianity stands or falls on people's willingness to do this. It, in other words, if every Christian was like those that do not lead others to Christ, then Christianity would fall on his face in one generation and that would be it. It'd just simply die and, and, and go away. So it, it depends for its existence on that. Also, we noted that uh, God loves everyone not just a few. He loves the homosexual, he loves the murderer, he loves the Muslim, he loves the communist, and Jesus died for everyone. And, and to, to put ourselves in the position of God, we need to think of our feelings for the closest people, for parents, that would be their children, and you all are either going to be parents or you are parents uh, that are here, and you'll find that there is this intense feeling that you have for all your children, uh, even if they're not always what you'd like them to be, you still have that intense feeling for them. And in the same vein, God has that for all of us. And so that if you're a Christian, you have to look at everybody out there as somebody that's made in the image of God. And God loves him no matter what his hang-ups, what his problems, whether he cusses every breath or, or stays drunk half the time. God loves him. And you and I cannot do anything more meaningful to God than to reach one of his children that are lost. Okay, so we, the, the importance of it is, is stated so many times that we really should we don't even have to prove it. It's just there. We can accept it or reject it. Okay, now we noted then uh, if we realize the importance of it, what are some things that would help us and motivate us to get out and, and get the message uh, to others? And one of the things that we discussed is that to give us confidence is first of all remember that everybody out there is made in the image of God. You know, we're not, we as Christians are not some kind of special freaks that have a different emotional system uh, or a, a different logic system than others. Uh, as, as Christians, we comprise uh, on a percentage basis as, as many good minds as, as, as anything else in the world. And we have the same logical ability as anybody else. And yet we made the decision to become a Christian uh, with, our, with our abilities and our emotions and, and our background and all that everybody out there is made in the image of God, and if this message, number one, was appealing to us, uh, if it touched our emotions, if it touched our heart, and if it was able to touch our intellect, then that in itself is evidence to you that it can touch the emotions, the heart, and the intellect of others. And, and if you'll just think about the people that you are aware of who at one time were atheists, or who were in the world as drunkards or on drugs or, or whatever, and yet they changed completely because of this, then again, that is an evidence to you that obviously this message has the potential to touch every part of our being. It can hit our emotions. We, we, we fully realize that. 
we know it can hit the intellect because we are all are aware of, of people that would be in the genius category uh, that have been converted to Christianity. Uh, John Clayton, in, in my judgment, is, 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 if he's not there, he's close uh, to the genius category, an outstanding mind brought up as an atheist, and yet here he is, a devout believer, teaching in the field of Christian evidences. And so when I look at John Clayton, I like to think about people like Clayton because he gives me confidence when he goes to taking this like uh, Mark, he was talking about uh, your supervisor and people like that, that when you think about these individuals that are, uh, have a certain educational background and maybe are very intelligent and, and they want nothing to do with Christianity, think of a man like John Clayton who felt the same way, who was very intelligent, very well educated, and he not only is not an atheist anymore, he's a devout Christian and a very conservative Christian. And so I'm saying just thinking of that ought to give us confidence in, in getting this message out because sometimes I think that our, our problem in getting it out is our lack of confidence, that we, we wonder whether or not we can reach this person who's out there cussing every breath or this homosexual or this person on drugs or this guy who has a doctor's degree in nuclear physics or something like that. But if you think about it from the standpoint that we all are made in the image of God and we do have devout Christians who are nuclear physicists and we have devout Christians who have doctor's degrees in every single solitary subject and we have Christians who are former atheists. And so that in itself is evidence that the message can reach these people. And that, that ought to give us confidence in, in going at it from that, that standpoint. Now, the, what we was going to discuss tonight is the, an approach to these people that are made in the image of God. And they are going to inwardly identify with the same things that you do. In other words, if you inwardly identify with God's law, uh, or this law, I should say, that's in the Bible, then there's a good chance others are also. If the things that the Bible says are right, you find yourself inwardly identifying with it. If the things it says are wrong, you find yourself inwardly identifying with it. And then there's a very good chance that all these other people made an image of God are going to find that same inner, inner identification. And if a certain evidence that you found persuasive, uh, then you, you can look at these other people out there who are your peers. There's a good chance they'll find it persuasive also. Now, in trying to get somebody into the Bible, that I think one of the, the first things to think about, and then I'm going to throw the floor open to you for some, some comments, when you take this book out there, or you're in this world that we live in, from the standpoint of our being embarrassed or, or anything other than extremely bold, and you can ask yourself, you know, how comfortable do you feel carrying a Bible around the campus? Uh, how, how comfortable do you feel when you go to the uh, classes on a secular college, and you're, do you feel very comfortable with that Bible, just as comfortable as you do with your math book and your biology book and your history book and all? Or is it something that you, you carry it around Christians, but you, you just as soon not have it there? And I'm not saying you have to carry that Bible around all the time. I'm saying the, the way you feel about carrying it around and, and your confidence in it and you're not being ashamed of it in any sense may tell you something about your confidence in the book as to whether you're as, as confident as you really think you are. Okay, look at the, the Bible in comparison to all the other books in our universities or libraries or anything else. Number one, the Bible, every single solitary year, is the world's best seller. I mean, people can talk all they want to about top sellers, but it, every single solitary year, it is the world's best seller. 
Uh, so I don't know why anybody would be embarrassed in the slightest. Uh, it, it sells more than the other book. Number two, it's been translated into more languages than any other book in the world. It was the first book to be translated into, into every known language within the same generation that the, the people wrote it. And so I'm saying that it's, it stands unique there. It's translated in all these languages. It's, it's the most sold. It's the most given away book. Uh, people buy more Bibles simply to give away than any other book. And in fact, uh, right now, I know the congregation I'm a part of and some of the others may be doing the same thing. Several times in the year, we've been sending money to, uh, uh, to people that are involved in translating the Bible and sending it into Russia and in various other countries in Eastern Europe and also into Africa. We just send it over there free. Uh, we've uh, been a part any number of times of buying Bibles by the cases just to give out. Well, again, the, the question is, why is it the most sold Bible every year? Why has it been so translated into every single solitary language? Why do people give it away? And then here's the next part. Despite all the, the newspapers, the magazines, uh, the books that are written every year, the pornography that's put out, uh, movies based on books like the, uh, the Last Temptation of Christ, the Bible continues to be the most studied book. I mean, we may complain that a lot of Christians don't study it as much as we think they should, but still, it is the most studied book in the world. There's no other book in the world that so many people would have at least some idea what it actually, what, what it contains than the Bible. So it is the most studied book in the world. All right, now, the question becomes then, why is this? I mean, there, for, there has to be a reason and I think that if we look for that reason, we might find something to give us more boldness in, in getting into more Bible studies uh, with individuals that are not Christian. Uh, in our society, pornography sells, doesn't it? But it's interesting, you don't, uh, pornography doesn't sell as well as the Bible does. Uh, but pornography sells. But if it sells and people pay the price they do for it, there has to be a reason. I mean, they're, they're, well, then what is the reason it sells? Pornography sells because the male is visually oriented when it comes to sex, and therefore he can be exploited. If the male was not visually oriented, pornography wouldn't sell. There's not too many women, by the way, that buy pornography. It's mostly males. Uh, they tried to come out with some magazines some years back for the women. You know, they had Playboy and Penthouse and all these things for the guys, and so they were going to come out some with the women. And at first, it was like he was going to go. I, I forget the name of it, whether it was Playgirl or what, you know. But you know who they found was the top buyers of it? And that was homosexuals. And they found that for many of the women, it was, uh, it was a comedy type thing. As, as much. It, it really, it's, in other words, uh, magazines of men for women have never really been big. And they've not even been able to push it. So I'm saying pornography goes because there's a, there's a thing out there with men there, okay? Music sales, and people make millions of dollars on music. Well, why does it? It sells because that there's something within all of us that we like music. Okay, can you imagine somebody going around trying to prove in some systematic, hardcore, no if and but way that uh, music is enjoyable? Now, how would you do that? How would you prove scientifically that music is enjoyable? You can't, can you? Uh, but 
it, uh, the fact that it, it sells and everybody likes it says something about it, but yet you can't prove it in a, in a scientific way. Okay, art sales. How do you prove what good art is in a scientific way? You can't. But I'm saying the very fact that people buy it says something about it, right? So, but if art didn't meet a, a need or, or some quality within us, it wouldn't sell. If music didn't meet something there, if the pornography didn't meet something that was there, it, it would not sell. Well, you can go right on down the line and everything of that nature sells only if it meets a need uh, that is within, within, and a lot of these things that sell because they meet some need, in reality, you could not prove in a scientific way that it does what the people say it does that actually buy the material, okay? So I said that to say this, there is a reason. Now, we haven't got to the reason yet, but there has to be a reason why that the Bible is the top seller every single solitary year and why that it's the most studied book every single solitary year and why it's been so translated and why people buy it and give it away. There, there has to be some, some reason for that. Okay, now, anybody, the, the floor is open. What are some of the reasons you can come up with? Thank God. Thank God created us with a, like a hole inside of us, you know, and like a spiritual hole, and it needs filling somehow. And the same reason the Bible's are pouring into Europe right now, you know, because those people, those people realize they have that need and they're looking for something. And that's why most people want to believe in something of God, because they, they need some kind, of, some kind of spiritual part of their lives in the Bible. Can give them okay, so you're saying that all of us have some part of our life beyond the physical that there is a need there to be filled, and, and, and obviously that whether you can prove this part, now we're, we're going to get into some scientific thing, but you're saying that obviously the Bible does something to fill that need, that people actually crave. In fact, we find that when people have been starved from, that, uh, from the book, they actually crave the material itself. There's no better example than Russia and, and Eastern Europe in that area now. Okay, so that, that it's, it's like water when you're thirsty. Uh, I know what water tastes like when I'm thirsty. Explain it. Somebody try to explain that. I know that when you're real, in fact, have you ever been real thirsty? Wait, now we all drank Cokes and tea and everything, but have you ever been so thirsty that, that Coke almost sounded like bread to you, that you wanted absolutely nothing but water? I, when I'm really thirsty, and I mean just really dry, that I want water, and then I'll, and so if I'm real thirsty, I might drink a couple of glasses of water and then go for a glass of tea or, or something like that. But how do you explain what you feel when you want water, and how do you explain what the water tastes like? Now, you tr somebody tried doing that with, with words. Okay, so, and when we crave food, the, the same thing. Okay, now think of a statement Jesus made. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness that Jesus said there was people in this world that just as we, we want water and our body demands it and we want food, that there was a spiritual hungering and thirsting after righteousness. All right, now forget about that word righteousness. It, it, that, let's take the religiousness off the word and just hungering and thirsting after what is right. Okay. Now, you, you live in a world 
Think about the world we live in, and I don't know that we can appreciate it unless we, the condition of it, unless we think, because we're so, I mean, look at what we're sitting in. It's 100 degrees out there almost, and we're sitting in here in perfect air conditioning, and we've all, none of us are hungry, none of us are thirsty. Uh, we, uh, you know, every, we got all our, everything going for us. But that's really not the real world that we live in. Uh, like the guy pointed out in his sermon last night, half the world goes to bed hungry every night. I mean, that's the rural half of them going to bed hungry. There are people starving out there. There are people with all kinds of diseases. There are people dying out there right now. There are people in wrecks right now. There are people all hopped up on drugs and alcohol and everything else right now. There, there are people out there divorcing. There's people out there raped and being raped. There's people out there shooting one another. Uh, you, you're you're going to, if you watch the news, it's one mugging, one raping, one theft right after another. Uh, there's war going on in this world that we're, we're in right now. Uh, we're polluting the air. We're polluting the water. And do you sometimes get this feeling that we, we want Superman to come on? In fact, maybe that's why Superman and Batman sail, by the way. We would like for a Superman to come on the scene and straighten this mess out. We, we'd like to see that tough guy in the mafia uh, somebody take him to task and whatnot. Well, when you do that, you think of this world and you feel so helpless. And yet when, you, when this book, when you start to read it, one of the things that comes across to your mind is, is that there is a high sense of rightness from beginning to end. And you find these characters that are standing up for everything that inwardly you identify with is, is right. And, and they're standing up for it, and they're standing up strong. And, and you find these, all these things that you believe are wrong and are scared to speak out on sometimes or feel inadequate. You find characters in here that are standing up and condemning it. Uh, when Jesus went, uh, went to the Pharisees and called them hypocrites and whitewashed tombs, have you ever had the feeling that you'd like to walk in among all the pop of the Pope when he's all decked out? and the cardinals are all around him and, and all of that going on and call them a bunch of hypocrites and whitewashed tombs as a result of, of and, and the, whole, the whole scene in, in, in that, and yet you don't do it. You'd like to see somebody, maybe, that had the boldness to do it or to look somebody in the face who's flouting morality out there uh, as if it were nothing and, and see somebody strong enough to tackle him. And when you look at the prophets and when you look at Moses, and when you look at the apostles, and when you look at John the Baptist, and when you look at Jesus, uh, here, here are the Hebrews, the, the heroes, I should say. And they all tackle ungodliness, and they all portray righteousness. So, okay, so you said that one thing, there is a, a hungering there. We, we have a sense of rightness, and so we inwardly identify with what this book is calling right, and we inwardly identify with what it's calling wrong, and we find all kinds of champions there and we find also some things said that meet some spiritual things within us. Any other any other reason? Don't you think that sometimes people like the song suggests they don't know what they're searching for, but but there's an emptiness and so they're searching for that which satisfies right. the song says. And I, I think a lot of times people don't even realize that they're looking for something to fill that void. Okay, I think what Barbara said ties right in that everybody's familiar with that song? and searching. Y'all don't have that song? U2 has a song called Desire, and it goes something like, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, so it's the same concept. Okay, this is searching, and it has somebody searching, and they, they just got a void, <laughs> but they really don't know exactly what they're searching for. Uh, what song is that? Where's it from? 
I don't even know if we've got an official one. Well, but anyway, it's not, the title is Searching. No, the, the, the problem, this may not be the official one, Tim. I don't know, but anyway, it, it, it's Searching, and it uses the word longing. I wish I had a songbook here on searching, that. Searching, are you searching? Seeking for that which satisfies. Right. Longing, are you longing? I got a song Right. We, we've got something that's not met, and we see it now. We, we dealt with the rightness bit, that, that that's one thing that we're searching for, some superman, some situation to set the thing right, to, to stand up and speak for what's right. But then when it comes to the qualities, what evidence would you present in a materialistic world that materialism in and of itself does not satisfy and make happy? Did you present any evidence? Well, you can look at the people that are materially wealthy. I mean, Hollywood's a perfect example. I mean, those people are just, okay. I mean, they, it's whatever they desire, they can purchase, and there's just so much unhappiness and suicides and that kind of stuff that comes out of that. Okay, uh, Freddie Prince, 22 years of age, millionaire, entertaining the president on Saturday night, Monday shoots himself. Marilyn Monroe, the beauty queen, and we find out later, an extremely unhappy life. Uh, an actually a maniac depressive type individual. Um, you could name others, there's been poems written, Donald Trump, would anybody like to trade places with Donald Trump right now? You know, that uh, think of his marriage, his life. Uh, uh, Ted, Turner. Ted Turner, same thing, ask in a question, was he uh, happy, would not answer it in the affirmative. Uh, he thought is, as much as you could be uh, in the situation here, refused to answer it in the affirmative to acknowledge that he was just really a, a happy person. Uh, the various, uh, Elizabeth Taylor married umpteen times. Obviously, if you've become an alcoholic, uh, you've had problems and, and, and seeking something, seeking some escape from reality, Betty Ford, etc. cetera, uh, right, right on down the, on the line. Uh, by the way, uh, Abraham Lincoln was a depressive, uh, very depressed in, individual for much of his time. That, that when we look at people in high positions, when we see people with a lot of wealth, obviously there's something that is lacking there. That they may not understand what it is, but there is, it, there is something that is, that is actually lacking. On the other hand, we all have witnessed or experienced those individuals that were very poor and yet were happy that uh, it seems to be that there is something within us that has to be taken care of or we can't be happy. And you can show that in, in that realm. Okay, so there's, there's some need for, for something there. Anybody else with a, uh, an observation? I think death is a big thing. Okay. I, I can't think of anything more nauseating than death. Okay. It makes me sick. And I, I don't think that anybody could not look at their own body and see that they're dying and not want a way out. Uh, there's no stronger motivation, in my opinion. That's that's a very good observation, Mark. I know that, in fact, the word you use is the same one I've used myself. Death is nauseating to me. If I think right now, you know, of just dying in the no hope or anything, it's nauseous. All right? Think about, uh, again, I don't know that we fully appreciate this in our society because when we die, we, we go, generally go to the hospital and the family comes in, but if somebody else is attending to you and everything, 
and we make it so we can pass off and then the undertaker comes in and he polices up everything and, 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 and we go to the funeral home and say, don't she look nice? Isn't he, he looks just like he did, you know, and, and, and we, we carry on. The real world up until recently and the real world for the most of the world today is that you bury your own dead. And so that means that, uh, that families had to prepare. Who was going to bury Jesus? His own friends. Uh, his, uh, two of his disciples come to get the body. And, and then the women came. And they were going to anoint him. For, but the people close to him, uh, they would have just thrown him in Rome, would have thrown him in a hole and forgot about him. And that would have been it. Throw him down in Gehenna and let him burn. But his own people come. And so families bury their own dead. And when people suffered... They didn't suffer in hospitals. There weren't any hospitals. They suffered at home. And so every time somebody died, all the family experienced the long, lingering suffering and the death, and they prepared that body, and they, they buried it. And so you can see the impression that it, that it actually made on the mind. But, yeah, I think the, the one writer, I can't think of his name, made the statement that any philosophy of life that did not deal with death was inadequate because death is the biggest reality that we all face. There's nothing that scares us any more than death. I mean, poverty, uh, not being a success in life, uh, whatever, that does not scare us like death. And if you'll think about it, everything you're afraid of just about ties in with death. You're not afraid of a chihuahua, but you are afraid of a lion. You're not afraid of a worm, but you're afraid of a snake. Uh, that if you're if it ties in any way in with death it scares you and if it doesn't it it doesn't bother you at all you get a cold or the flu and uh, you, it doesn't even phase you the doctor says you got cancer and it scares you uh, because you know that hey this can kill me and so when you get right down to it all the fears that we have tie in with death okay then let's get back then to our thing about the bible forget about the bible where is the philosophy in the world that attempts to handle death and the possibility of life beyond this life? Where is uh, the, the, the philosophy that, that handles it in some way? Do the, uh, uh, there's others that make attempts at it, aren't they? Okay, uh, Muhammad. Uh, I mean, those Muslims, a lot of them are dying. They make an attempt at handling death, but why is it that, that the idea of studying Muhammad doesn't grab you like studying about Jesus when it comes to the subject? He, with Muhammad, they, they, visit, they visit his grave. Don't they? In fact, 1,200 of them just died trying to get to his grave, you know, and they'll bury them out there somewhere too. But they visit his grave. Uh, Buddha, they buried him. Uh, Confucius, they, they buried him. Uh, Father divine that wasn't going to die, they buried him. They'll bury Reverend Moon one of these days. Uh, they buried Moses, or at least his body was disposed of, that everybody that's ever lived has died, and so that apparently gives us a hint that they didn't understand a whole lot more about life than we do, that they died. Maybe there's something beyond, but at least all they could offer you is a hope, right? whether it's the happy hunting grounds or what Muhammad offered, it's just a wild hope because they died. And, and maybe it's like the Ecclesiastes writer said. When the Ecclesiastes writer, if we look at it and what we have there, that's not the Holy Spirit dictating every word to a man. This is a man thinking for himself. And he wants to know when you die, does your spirit go down or up? He says, who knows? You know, I haven't seen it one way or the other. 
that, and we have this going on through there, and, and that is the position of our thinking without some kind of, some kind of evidence and all. Okay, now, we haven't proved anything about Jesus, but let's get back to the, the, the thing about the Bible being the most sowed and everything like that. When it comes to Jesus, it'd be hard to find anybody anywhere, so far as accountable adults, that was not aware of the fact that the claim is that he rose from the dead. And see, they may not believe it, but I think you'd have a hard time finding anybody. Uh, for example, Lee is not here tonight. Uh, those of you that don't know uh, Lee, Lee is the Chinese student that we've studied with a few times, Tim and Christy are studying with right now. He was in Beijing last year. He comes from an atheist environment. And of course, we hope he's going to become a, uh, become a Christian. But Lee has never studied the Bible, but Lee already knew that there was the claim that Jesus had raised from the dead. He don't believe it yet, but he at least knows that claim. Well, let's get back then to this, this, this searching thing in, in, in the Bible. If, if you've got cancer, it seems to me that you're in somebody has got some medicine that, that maybe will work, you're going to be interested. You're going to be grabbing at anything. And so I'm saying the very fact that the Bible makes the claim that Jesus was raised from the dead, that doesn't prove it. But that steers your mind. And that becomes a curiosity item. And it becomes a motivation to seek. Okay, now Jesus has promised, seek and you shall find. And I'm saying the very claim of his resurrection becomes a motivation to seek because I agree with Mark that one of the strongest motivating things within us is that we don't want to die. And we want some hope beyond the grave. And when you look at everything that's available to you, this is at least a person that the claim is that he was raised from the dead. We all know what happened to Muhammad and the others. But at least there's a claim here that he's, that he's raised from the dead. Okay, any other thing? I think everybody wants to know, how did I get here and why am I here? Okay, that's real. Bible provides answers for that. Okay. Uh, what's your first name? Alan. Alan. Okay, I had uh, Alan and uh, Jason, and also a young man by the name of Scott Carnes, are going to Czechoslovakia, and we're going to be involved somewhat in that work, and that's why they're here, and they'll be speaking tomorrow morning at, uh, over at Collins. But right, I think that uh, it's hard to imagine a logical thinking person not thinking about that. I mean, he may not use those words, but why am I here? Uh, is there any purpose for my life? And then what Mark's saying, is there anything beyond this? Well, then the question is, it seems to me that, that any book that addressed those questions, you would at least be interested in. You know, it doesn't prove it's right, but you would be interested in it. It's sort of like these, uh, pick up, try to find a, mag, a ladies' magazine out there that don't have a diet in it or a way to lose 20 pounds. You can't find one. <laughs> they're, they're there. So now it doesn't prove they're good, but I'm saying that it shows that there's a lot of ladies out there interested in that, right? And so, and, and so you pick them up and, and read them. Well, I'm big on health articles myself. Anything that has to do with health, you know, it'll catch my eye and I'll, I'll read it. And I've, and I've changed a lot of things as a result of what I've read. And so that uh, you, you have those, those things, that, those needs, they wouldn't sell those articles. If, if the need wasn't there, if there wasn't some desire to, for that information. Well, in the same vein, I suggest to you that unless the Bible had done an, at least a pretty good job of handling those questions, it wouldn't be the best-selling book in the world. 
Because the, the truth is, I guess if you want to sum it up in a nutshell, what Ellen said, the Bible literally claims to handle those questions. It claims to tell us where we come from. It claims to tell us why we're here. It claims to tell us about where we're going. That's the claim it makes. And, and so that uh, the evidence, now we haven't proved anything, but we've said that the very fact that it has been so studied and is so studied and is so sold and is so given away, it's sort of like this, again, this thing about maybe the water and all that we talked about earlier is evidence that at least a lot of people have thought that it did a pretty good job of handling those questions. Okay, now, let's look at the Bible. That uh, when you think of the answer, again, we're not, th we're not even looking at evidence. When you think of the answer that the Bible gives as to why you're here and what is expected of you and where you're headed, is there anything illogical about those answers? Well, look at our various backgrounds. Mark's an engineer. Several of you young guys are studying to be engineer. Joe is a jack of all trades. I'm a mechanic, musician, and a multitude of other things. Uh, my, my, <laughs> my specialty is history. Other people are engineers and studying theologians. Um, Jack has his expertise in, in his field. He's into auto parts and things of that, that nature. Look at our varied background. We've got school teachers, engineers, people working at various uh, jobs. And we think that the way that those questions are handled are logical. Obviously, or we wouldn't. Uh, now, that doesn't prove it's true. But what it does prove is it has a possibility of, of being true. Now, and, and I don't want to push this too far because something can sound illogical and be true, and it can sound logical and not be true. Okay, so you remember that if you, when you use this argument with anybody. Uh, to say the sun is that we are closer to the sun in the wintertime than the summer sounds illogical, but it's true. Uh, to say that we're further away in the summer, you know, sounds illogical, but it, it, it's true because we're only thinking on a few facts, and, and when we consider all the facts, then we, we can understand it. So I'm saying that it doesn't prove it's true because it sounds logical, but at least it, it gives strong possibilities there it, it, that it, uh, concerning what it actually says. Okay, any other comment? I'll just make one comment there. You know, the, what she said about the searching, Barbara said, everybody, it seems that everybody here standing on the ground is searching for a completion of their lives. I was talking to a guy that was a drug dealer, and he was, uh, one guy asked him, he said, how much money have you gone through in a year's time? And he said, about $250,000. They said, how in the world could you go through that much money? Because he did it in the first place to make money, see. He said, after a while, it didn't mean anything. It's just like the wind just blew it away, you know. But he was searching for money and thinking that that would answer his problems, and it didn't. In fact, uh, from... It seems to me from reading and, and listening to people that have made it materially and all that, and I know my own experience in a much more limited way with material things, there can be this thing that you really want. And so you finally get it. But then it doesn't take too long. It's old hat. When you first get that brand new car, you know, it's just great. But after you've driven it for a few years, it's just a car to you. And, uh, and then they can wave another one that's a little newer and got a few more gadgets on it and, and a little more of something, and it becomes much more appealing to you than what you've got. 
And so what happens to wealthy people? They just regularly are, are getting the next and the next and the next. A lot of people caught up in it and let it blind them until they, at there's some stopping point, a bottoming out point, where the, something shakes them and says, that's not the answer. You, you're looking in the wrong direction. Right. You, obviously, the, somewhere along the line, the America. fact that it doesn't satisfy yeah. ought to say something. Okay, the, isn't this what the Ecclesiastes writer... Solomon uh, did everything that he could do. And, uh, he's an excellent example. Though. Right. Yeah, everything that was possible, he could do because he was a king and he had control over he, he kept looking for satisfaction, didn't he? Whether it was in just having a good time or studying books or owning things and material things, he kept looking for satisfaction, and then he always wound up saying, this is vanity. It, it doesn't really mean it. And, and again, get back to what you said, Mark. The bottom line to Solomon was this thing of death. He kept getting back to that, that a, a, a live dog's better than a dead lion. And, and then he says, so what you've got? So what that you're wise and the other guy's a fool? The same event happens to both of you. You're both going to die. And then for the guy that had worked so hard and made so much, he said, after your death, who knows, but that one of your descendants will be a fool and then spend it, you know, and everything. So he, he never found any satisfaction in, in any of that, you know. So we're saying that, uh, that, when it, that everybody out there, now let's get back to our premise that we as Christians, recognize that we have an importance, uh, a job, an important job of getting this message out to the world. We're not as aggressive as we should be as a whole. That the majority of Christians do not lead people to Christ. The majority of Christians do, they may carry the Bible to the church building, but from the standpoint of, of carrying it to a stranger and saying, hey, I'd like to study this with you, the majority of Christians go all their life and don't do anything like that. Uh, and so the, the question is, what is it that can give us more boldness, more aggressiveness, and more insight, and, and get us out there and, and reaching more people? And we've said, number one, if we just remember that how important it is to God, and the reasons it's important to God. Number two, everybody out there is made in the image of God. And, and don't be scared of that pseudo-intellectual out there, or the guy with a doctor's degree in physics, or anything like that, because... We've got people that are Christians that have doctor's degree in physics and math and all these things, and they've been turned on for Christianity, so obviously there's nothing in his mind that would keep him being turned on. Next, that since we're made in the image of God, we have inner identification with the same things, sort of like our physical body craves water and craves food. And so if, if when we read this, the things that it says are right, we inwardly identified with it, and what it says are wrong, we inwardly identified with it, then we have every reason to believe that that will be true with other people out there. Next, we noted that everybody out there is, has a quality within him that's not being met by the things in the world. And we know that this has met that quality within us. I mean, if, if you're in Christ, uh, Paul says that you, you have a, something that is, goes beyond understanding. The, the people that don't have it really don't understand it. If, you, if you're walking right now, and you have a completely good conscience, even though you're very imperfect and you know it, because you know that, that you, have, you don't have any guilt, you feel good about yourself because you know all your sins are clean in the blood of Christ. If, if you die tonight, you have eternal life. Uh, when you live your life, you, you experience the providential care of God in your mind. You understand uh, and, and believe that God is, is concerned and all. You have access to him in prayer. You have something going that gives you something that, uh, that the other guy doesn't have that's rich or any has anything else without Christ. But he has a need and a desire for it. If it fills your life, you think maybe it, it just might fill his also. 
All right, next, we noted that everybody wants to deal with the same questions. Uh, why are we here? Uh, I don't care if you're making a million dollars selling candy. I mean, to me, somewhere along the line, you've got to think, what good am I doing? You know, that, uh, I'm making a million dollars, but all I'm doing is putting out a lot of candy. But uh, why are we here? Is there any meaning to life whatsoever? And is there any hope beyond the grave? And I suggest to you that, that I believe the majority of people would be interested in this. And our task then is to get them into the study of the book itself. And remember the statement, faith comes by hearing the word. And I'm not talking about, and Paul's not using it in a sense, that there's something mystical that happens when you hear the word. The word contains these things we're talking about, this right and wrong. The word contains the perfect life of Christ. The word contains the, the resurrection along with all the evidence for it. The word contains prophecies, a multitude of statements about things that were written before they actually took place. And the word contains this unique feature of, of all of these books being written by so many people and yet coming together to make this one perfect story. So I'm saying that the word, this is a book of evidence. Uh, it, it contains truth, but it also contains the deeds. Uh, you know you're going to die. Have you ever thought about the possibility of eternal life? Would you be willing to examine the evidence for the resurrection of Christ? You've got everything to gain and nothing to lose. If, if, it's, if it's false, at least you can have the peace of mind of knowing that you've discredited it. And if it's true, then it could be the most important thing you, you've ever come in contact with. And then when we get into the study of the book, uh, what I was, if Lee had been here tonight and with some others, the, the book really that I like to start, start with in, in studying with an individual is Luke. Uh, because Luke is a Gentile writer, he thinks like a Gentile, and the, the book is presented more in the way that uh, we would write the material even today. It's more in chronological order than uh, Mark and Matthew. Uh, it contains more of the teaching, more of the parables of, of Jesus, and you can actually use Luke as your basis and fit Mark and Matthew uh, into it and where you need where, where it has room for more more details and all on certain points and some of the other events and then after using Luke as a basis with Mark and Matthew around it John to me is the most personal of the gospel uh, he, he was so far as dealing with in an intimate way with the person of Jesus and I think that in sitting down and studying there is just something that happens we can talk about Jesus but of all the, the things I've preached on, there's nothing that I feel more inadequate speaking on. Maybe that's why we don't talk about it more than we do. That it's, it's, easier to, it's a whole lot easier to get facts than it is to talk about Jesus. I mean, you got to, that, that uh, there is something, I've, I've heard a lot of preaching and had before I became a Christian, but there is something that happens to my mind when I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that I don't experience any other way. There, there is something in that personality that, that for the first time in my life, I get the feeling that I'm experiencing a, per a perfect person. That his answer to every question seems to be absolutely the perfect one. His reason for doing anything is absolutely perfect. His teaching just sounds perfect to my mind. And everything about it seems to be perfectly logical. And so I'm saying there is something that comes from just looking at that personality in those four authors and the context that's there 
that I don't know can be accomplished any other way. And I think books on evidence is as big as I am on them. I think they're supplements, and, and they can add a lot and, and all. But there is absolutely no substitute for studying the Gospels and looking at Jesus as he's revealed uh, in, that, in that particular context. And I think uh, if you have that, I believe you even study evidences in a different frame of mind uh, than, you, than you do otherwise. One guy, one, one statement the guy made last night that spoke that I thought was real good, he said that uh, the people that we know how to convert are not there anymore. That the past generation took the gospel to people that already believed the Bible, were already reading the Bible, and it was just a matter of showing, hey, uh, your little group is wrong on these two points, and our group's got that figured out. And so we move them from one group to the other group. You know, and, 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 and in, in that way, and that was the, and we grew, and so if you could come up with something that you could figure out better than the other fellow, you know, you can move a lot of people into your group. But I mean, anyway, that was the world. The world now is one where, in our environment, people are not that studied as they were a generation back. They don't, they have a lot of skeptic, skepticism about the Bible. It, in, in many ways, it's a much more sophisticated and educated people. But it's a world that, in many ways, is, is hurting. Because if God's law is perfect, then you would expect that the further a society got, gets away from it, the more hurting there's going to be. And so as a result of having more divorces, as a result of, of all the situation with the drugs and the, the immoral lifestyles and the materialism, then you would expect there to be a lot more hurting and consequences than there were in a generation where most marriages was a man and woman and they were bringing up their children and the guy went to work and, and, and they were actually practicing a whole lot of the law and reaping benefits from it. And so those people have needs and we, when we go out there and just simply try to say that our church is more right than somebody else, or we tell them why we partake of the supper on the first day of the week, or why we do or don't use a piano, or why about our sign or whatever, I don't believe that we're hitting any need that those people have. I'm not saying there's not a place for discussing those things, but the person that's having problems trying to bring their children up in this society, that's got problems with their marriage, or got problems at work, and problems with drugs, the, the pitiful thing is that the, the answers are here and that we need to, to meet these people where they're at. And if I think uh, there's no better place to look than Jesus and whatever problem they've got, I think we need to show them the, that, that this will meet the need. One of the ways you start off meeting the need is that as a Christian, you become a caring person that's concerned about the other individual because there's not too many. How many atheists? 
Uh, where are the atheist organizations that are involved in caring for other people? I mean, I'm sure John Clayton makes a big point on this. Where are the atheist? He's a former atheist. Where are the atheist groups that are building, uh, doing things like agape to help out uh, uh, women who are not married and pregnant, or doing things to help out uh, uh, children who don't have parents, or doing things to help out the needy that are hungry? Where are the atheist groups that are involved there? They're not. You know that if you want to find an atheist group, then then look for this uh, high school student in Washington, D.C. that get up, gets up to give an address at the school assembly and in the process gives the finger and cusses people out from the audience and is suspended three days by the principal and the atheist organization, uh, the ACLU, put, gives a lawyer to defend him and, and they win the suit the prince, and the school system has to pay $13,000 because they interfered with his free speech. Now that's the atheist organization. But I'm saying that, that uh, we don't have uh, that kind of thing. And I'm saying that when we as Christians go out into this hard world, these people on drugs, most people are not interested in them. And, and uh, the people that are homosexuals, most of the straights can't stand them. And the homosexuals made an image of God, and his sin is no worse than adultery or, or anything like that. I mean, in the Bible, it's put forth as a sin just like adultery or, or fornication. It's a sexual sin. And that we ought to be the people that go out with love and concern and are willing to involve ourselves with these people. Mark? Something that's given me a lot of confidence. There's still a lot of areas I need to work on, but I've been reading a book by Francis Schaeffer, who's an outstanding philosopher that died in 1984. And he makes a point that some kind of slips by. Christianity is the only answer. It's not that the other people haven't found an answer yet. There is no possible answer to any of the questions like why you exist, or what happens after death. You know, all these other religions are just perversions of Christianity anyway. They okay. have a touch of truth, but there is no possible other answer. It's the only answer. Okay, good point, Tharkon, when you mentioned others simply pervert what was there. A statistic he gave last night, it put all the world on a thousand bases. Okay? Instead of 5.2 billion, think of it on a thousand bases. 300 of that thousand would be professing Christian. Okay, it's 30% of the population. But now that's everything that calls itself Christian. But still, it's the largest and only worldwide religious group. Now, 175 would be Muslim. So the Muslims are second to us. But here's the interesting thing on the Muslim religion. The Muslim religion has its origin in the Bible. Take the Bible away and there's no Muslim religion. Uh, the Mohammed goes right back to Abraham. He, sir, he believed Allah is Jehovah of the Old Testament. They believe in the Old Testament. They differ with the interpretation. When it comes to the New Testament, the Muslim accepts the New Testament, the majority of it. The Muslim accepts Jesus as a, as a great man. And this is inter was interesting to me when I found it out. They do not even deny his resurrection. And they take a statement where Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit coming, and they get that into Muhammad. But the point is, they borrowed from Judaism and Christianity and then perverted it in various ways. But take away the Bible and there is no Muslim religion. And so the, I'm saying the, the, when you get right down to it, the only book, 
that is even answering this in a way that is creditable to the human mind. For, and, we, and keep in mind, our purpose tonight has not been to get into hardcore evidence. We're, we've done that and will do it. But it's to point out that you and I as Christians ought to be the boldest people in the world with the message we got. It's, it's the only book in the world that even handles these important questions in a creditable way. Intellectually, it's turned on the greatest minds all through the century. Uh, Gallio was a strong believer in the inspiration of the Bible. All of the great thinkers down through the centuries, of uh, the, the great scientists and all, were believers in the inspiration, in the inspiration of the Bible. The majority of the world believes in a supreme being. Uh, the atheist, whom we have allowed to be so vocal and have tackled him so few times in an intellectual way, commands about 5% of the population, despite every effort to kick God out of the school system and everything, 95% still believe in God. And despite all the hullabaloo over the last temptation of Christ, it's on the shelves somewhere now, and the Bible's still outselling every other book. And, and, the, and they've got a, I've got an article the other day, the Campus Crusade for Christ with Bill Bright. They've got a movie called Jesus, and it's being shown behind the what used to be the Iron Curtain right now, and they're trying to get money to show it and all, but they are having thousands and thousands of people go to see it. Every place they show it, they pack the theater, and people are coming out and making commitments for Christ. And it, the movie's based on Luke. They use only the words of Jesus, and it's a very conservative present, presentation. But the point is, when they're showing that over there, people are literally flooding the theater. They cannot accommodate all the people that want to get in and see it. So obviously, it's meeting some need that, that people have out there. You and I ought to be very bold. We ought to be very aggressive in the good way. In a good way, man, it, our whole economy is based on selling. And if people can get out there and sell vacuum cleaners and, and candy and detergents and, and all of that good stuff, I don't know why in the world we can't do a better job selling the, the really the only really essential important thing that that, that is in the world. And, You don't have they to think. I think the uh, but the part probably that bothers me, and we'll end on pretty quick here. You can make any comments you want on this. What what has bothered me more than anything on what we're talking about is all the years I've been a Christian is is not really the atheist. It's not the ACLU. It's not the Muslims or anything like that. It's Christians. It's, I have never understood the lukewarm Christian. To the day I die, I won't. I became a Christian when I was 19. Uh, from the very beginning, it was just like it, that if it's true, it, it just doesn't make sense other than to give it all you've got. I've never understood the person that goes to service on Sunday morning and, and then that's it and doesn't get involved in the work and do and everything like that. I've never understood that. 
I've never understood the person that could just simply go to service and, and not want to get that out to others. I mean, if you, if you understand it, everybody that you know, think of, first of all, of the people that you really love, if they're outside of Christ, they're lost. And, and if you really love people, you want them to have happy marriages, you want them to be successful in rearing their children, uh, you want them to have good relations with others, and you want them to have a good relationship with God, and they can't have any of that outside Jesus. They just can't. There's, there, I, don't, I don't believe there's any marriage that will work outside the principles that are put here. I don't believe anybody can be successful in rearing children outside these principles. And I don't believe anybody can have friends in this life outside of operating on these basic moral principles that taught there. And I know for sure that nobody's going to have a relationship with God. And so if we really are concerned about other people, I just can't understand those of us who profess belief and yet do not want to do all we can at getting this out, and also from within the congregation to, to get more people to see the importance of it. And, and as a body of people that uh, have a hard time understanding spending more money on, on buildings than on missionaries. And I have a hard time with that. I think that, uh, that, that the, most of the money ought to be going directly into the missionary, and it ought to be taking that out. We need more full-time people presenting the message. In fact, the the, the, no building can compensate for it. Uh, the people that we want to read these great books, last, last night I was browsing through all the books, you know, down at that uh, ju the, uh, uh, Jubilee. There, there is some fantastic material out. I, I don't even have time to read all the books that I'd like to read in Christianity. There is some fantastic material coming out. But the people that really need to be reading a lot of that are not going to walk in there and buy it. The only way they'll get it is if you and I buy it and take it to them or if you and I buy it and put it in our mind and then take these... Con this, in other words, there, there's no substitute for the Christian that will study and learn and then expend himself getting it out. I mean, there's just no other way of getting that information out. Anybody else want to make any uh, comment before we close this afternoon? I think something that might be a cause as to why you have lukewarm Christians is that they're in, interested in fire insurance. A wrong concept of hell. I mean, it's only there because God is a just God, you know. And there's a lot of people that preach the fire and brimstone. It's something that we talked about on the way down. Uh, just, you know, you're not going to do any more than what you have to if you're afraid of getting out of hell. I Paul, mean, you've got some fire insurance policy. You, you're not going to try to love somebody else. You just want to save your own hide. And you do whatever you can to do that. But other than that, you're going to take It's interesting hide. because the person that thinks that way really doesn't even have what he thinks he's got. Uh, it's like the song that we've got that I dislike more than any we sing is that you never told, he, told me about him. And it pictures this person in heaven and this other person lost. And he's pointing up to this guy that's enjoying all the bliss of heaven and, and, and saying, you never told me about him. And I'm thinking, how is that guy in heaven when he sent it so <laughs> you know, uh, And number one, it, the picture is, is not fair to God. But because it has God condemning to eternal destruction a sincere person that would have responded if he was given the opportunity. Well, first of all, I, I, I believe too much about the providence of God to believe that. I believe the, that anybody that's seeking is going to find, and if, if I don't get it to him, I, God's going to work one way or the other. You know, I, I believe that. But by the same token, I have a problem with this fellow over there in heaven that has <laughs> refused, <laughs> refused to take any passengers all his life. And, the guy didn't like him as much as he thought he liked him. Right. He did, obviously didn't love him. Yeah. Obviously didn't love him. Uh, uh, maybe part of our thing is we water down love. 
so that it, so that no, none of us want to say that we don't love people, but as uh, our idiom, actions you know speak louder than words. Uh, that love will be shown in, in in actions itself. I think that's also an example of how the people, how the preachers who uh, who have sold people on fire insurance, are using their guilt to make them go out and do things. Because they obviously don't. If they've only got fire insurance, they don't have the love to go do it. So the only other way to make them do it is work on their guilt. Well, and really, the there's no greater motivation yeah. than love. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, uh, when it when it comes to love. There is, there is no good parent that could even tell you about the laws that the state of Tennessee has for what they're supposed to do for their children. Uh, they don't even think about it because their, their own love goes far beyond. And by the way, the state has laws there. But they go far beyond. There are some parents that we have to, the state has to go out and mech them, send their children to some kind of school. I mean, they have to mech them do it. And they have to mech them provide certain things for their children or threaten to take them away. But I'm saying that if you love, you go far beyond that. There's no, it just, it just literally takes over and does. But there's, there is no more greater motivation I can't, than love. It's silly to even try to top it with fire. I think one reason we have such a hard time reaching out to people, and this is, this is no excuse, but I think we're caught in an endless cycle. People who we learn from are people who aren't involved in evangelism. And so, I mean, I mean, the people who we who we trust and respect and are trained by don't teach us evangelism. And so then we grew up not doing it, and we teach the people below us not to do evangelism. So it's just an endless cycle, really. And no one ever steps out on the line and says, hey, I'm going to take responsibility here and lay it on the line and share, share my faith with others. Hmm. So we're just, I mean, even the student center, you know, we have a hard time. We don't have any real role models for evangelism. Yeah. Well, people don't know how to evangelize. Yeah, that's Jason. I think that's real good. What you say. That's no excuse for us. No, but what you say is right. You you go in a congregation, and well, maybe four four fifths of the congregation just come to service and they're nice people, but they're not out evangelizing. They're not conducting Bible studies, things like that. And even like you said, when it comes even to the people working full time, many of them are not evangelistically oriented, nor are they even trying to motivate him. What I mean is the congregations that support missionaries, without exception, have preachers that are motivating them to do it. They just don't do it. If you if you didn't, if a preacher wouldn't motivate that, the congregation would just build bigger buildings and bigger steeples. You know, you they've got somebody that's that's motivating that kind of thing. But I think that's right that uh, that there we are brought up in that, and and you can just think you're okay when really you're not. You can think you're because you're just as good as the other. Fellow, so, uh, the uh, you know, some years back I'm getting, that uh, I started jogging because I was coming to the conclusion I was out of shape and I'd read read all these books on the heart and everything like that. And I was in my 30s, and I got up to where I was doing three miles at, in about 17 minutes or something like that. And I felt great about that. You know, I was just proud as a peacock. And so one, I was out there. We lived right across from the football field at the time. And so I met this guy. He was about 50. You know, I went out there to do my three miles, and he was about 50, you know. And so we started jogging together and talking. And we just kept going, and first thing you know, I finished my three miles, 12 laps around the, the field, and this guy's still going. And I thought, well, I'll go another lap with him, you know. <laughs> and I did about two more, and I conked out, you know, and I had to drop out. And I thought, well, I'm just going to see how far this old boy is going to go. And so he ran, I forget now exactly, but about eight miles. And when he finished, he wasn't even breathing hard. And I thought, well, man, I, that I thought I was in shape, 
because most people I know can't run three miles, you know. And this guy's 50 and running eight. But what it was good for me, I'm not trying to say you got to run eight miles from it, it let me know that the human body had a whole lot more potential than what I realized, and it wasn't too many months after that that I could run my eight or ten miles also because I had just topped out and quit. Nobody else did it. And then I thought, well, I'm just curious. I'll see that if I can do this too. And so I had a little bit, and it wasn't too many months that I could run my eight or ten miles also without, it, without any problem. Well, I think in the same way that you can settle into church, and if you come to service three times a week, you're above the average, you know, quite a bit above the average. And there is just not too many people, like you said, and I think that it's easy to be lulled to sleep when we, we ought to be looking at Jesus and, and not at members who are really not doing as they should do. Paul, is, is there a methodology for evangelism that you feel is the best? Well, what we did in our, we, we tried a lot of different things in the mission type works that we was in. And what went best with us is two things. Number one, the, uh, I think that always look for an opening. And when you just get to know people and make friends at first, and, and that's all you want to do. You want to make friends, you want people to like you. Uh, and, uh, and then look for openings. There, there will always be the times when the conversation will get into something that you can slide in there you know, in a way that you're not preaching to that person or anything like that. And then we invite people. We've always, what we've done for a multitude of years, we have home Bible study, just like this one tonight. And when we was in New Jersey and I was doing it full time, we had two a week. And so we would just in a very casual way say that, hey, we've got a Bible study that meets such and such, and we'd love to have you. And, and then I'd tell the people, we, there's no pressure. We're not trying to proselyte anybody. It's just a Bible study with the idea of enriching everybody there, and they go back, you know, wherever they go, and, and that's it. Well, from that Bible study, we grew there from about 35 or so people in three years to about 125. The last three months I was there, we baptized 11 or 12 people, and all of them from the home Bible study. And they were just people that come in to study that way, but then in the process, got, we started out with evidences and all, and it depends on who you're studying with as to where you have to start. I mean, if you already believe the Bible, you know, it's, it's, it's different. And then we never, we, I never did preach a sermon nor ever have a lesson, for example, on baptism. But yet everybody we ever converted was baptized. And what we did, we just went right through it. And like, I remember one lady we baptized, we are going through the book of Acts, and we just discussed it, you know. And, and, uh, and she says, she brought it up. She says, well, is my baptism okay? She was a, had a Catholic background. And she said, I was sprinkled as a baby. And I said, well, what do you think? And she and I says, what do you think in light of this? And she says, well, it doesn't sound okay. And, and I said, well, I agree with you. If I was in your position, I would have problems with that. But you're going to have to make the decision in your own mind, you know. And the following Sunday, I'm in there preparing for my uh, class, and she knocks on the door, and it's about 9 o'clock in the morning. She wants to be baptized. And, and then a few weeks after that, we baptized her husband. And, and everybody, we, of all of them there, never once was there a sermon on baptism. But it was just something that come up as a natural part of the teaching. And I think to teach in such a way that, that it's, it, everything comes up in just a natural, that's where there's no substitute in just going through the Bible. Because it's not like you picked out this subject to get them. You're just studying the context. And you take the Gospels, you're going to study Christian evidences. You're going to study the Holy Spirit. You're going to study miracles. You're going you're gonna to study repentance. You're going to study all the moral teachings of Jesus. 
uh, and you, you're going to hit every single aspect of it in, in going through it, and it just comes in a natural setting. Well, do you know any congregation anywhere that's aggressively pursuing that type of evangelism? Well, on a, a congregation-wide system, I mean, systematically doing it, and if so, what kind of growth is a church like that? Well, there, it's interesting. The churches that are growing have personal work going. Now, Mark, going back, uh, say, take it to when I was converted in the, in the 50s, personal work was the thing. That, that's interesting that uh, you had uh, personal work uh, directors and you had members involved. And uh, the way I got started in it is the church started a personal work program and I started going with another man who had a study. We show him the, something called the Jewel Miller Fem Strips. Now, you haven't seen it, but it's a, it's, it's a series of five Fem Strips through the Bible. Now, they may not be perfect, and see, they was for that day. It wouldn't be the best thing right now. But the first person I ever baptized is we, we were showing and studying through the Jewel Miller film strips. And a lady asked to be baptized, and I didn't know what to do. And so I called a preacher, and he says, well, you need to baptize her. And, I, and he explained to me over the phone how to baptize her. And we went down there and baptized her. But I'm saying we had a regular program. And I remember talking with James Watkins some years back over in Chattanooga. And he said 75% of all that were baptized over there was through the personal work. But I don't know, when I was here uh, years ago, uh, before now, you know, I was here and then come back, we grew from about, I guess about 30 when it jacked to about 125, somewhere in that category. It was every bit through personal work. That we just, uh, you'd convert one person and then they would invite maybe a brother or sister or something like that and we'd study another. But it was out and we had personal studies going. But I've never been anywhere but if they emphasize personal work in the church and you get uh, several people doing it and working together, that you convert people. Uh, right now, at, uh, down there at Tennessee Tech, if, if several of those congregations would go together and hire one person just as full-time to emphasize personal work in evangelism, and you all had somebody that, that you could take your contacts to and into their house like this, and, or you could go to and they emphasize that, I guarantee you, you'd baptize people. That, I mean, if there, there's nobody emphasizing personal work, you know, they, everybody's concerned about other matters, uh, but there's nobody, the ones that do it, it it's successful. Uh, I could have been converted before I was if I'd, have, if I'd have come in contact with somebody that could have answered my questions. You mean by just, you mean knocking doors? No, I'm not big on, I've done door knocking. I never felt comfortable. The, the, your best contacts are the people that you meet, your peers. Uh, right. And I'll tell you another thing. If you think about your peers, you get the best conduct out of yourself. I mean, if you really think your peers are who you want to reach and all those, you're going to talk better, you're going to act better, you're going to be more conscious of your own behavior. For a lot of people, the reason they don't talk to their peers is because of their language and their conduct. And so they'd rather go down to another state and knock somebody's door that, that doesn't know them. <laughs> but I'm saying that if you're really and truly a Christian, the best people is, is, is your peers, the, the people that you, that you meet and have contact with and know you as a person. Uh, uh, look at the statement that Peter made. Be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. You know, in meekness and in, in fear. You know, that, uh, that he, if you have this hope, everybody else out there knows they're going to die too. If, if you have made it clear that you believe that you've got eternal life in Christ and he's got the answer to all your problems and everything like that, that there are going to be questions that come in that direction. 
And for you all, though, one thing I will say for young, because I think Mark had talked with us, uh, me some last week, about sometimes feeling guilty and not doing more. Keep in mind, and I'm not saying you have to be 30, Jesus was 30 years of age before he ever converted anybody, that he spent those early years studying and maturing and growing. And I really believe that for young people, the most important thing you can do is study and mature and develop. And then that you ought to have, just like uh, the one over the student center, say Mike Matheny, he ought to be a person that you could take people to and contacts to, just like the disciples would go out and bring somebody to Jesus. Okay? Then you need this person that is, I think, the best, you need a full-time person. And you need somebody that others and the young and all can feel comfortable to take them to and, they st and set up studies, you know, and, and uh, are members of the church that maybe cannot conduct a study themselves but could get friends in their home and then invite somebody in uh, that can, you know, conduct the study and all like that. And then, you know, to the extent of your own study at this point, you know, you can share that and everything like that. But when, like Mark, for example, trying to reach your supervisor, who's, you know, up there and all, you're at a disadvantage, you know, as a young person trying to, trying to reach this older person and all. But I think the, the most important thing that a young person can do is to be studying and developing himself. There's always been programs at student centers to attempt to evangelize. We've always had programs to do that, but it's always been the younger people that don't have as much knowledge sure. about trying to do it. And you, you always feel like you're stumbling through it. We've got, we always have had going Bible studies and stuff like that. Sure. You always feel like you're, you're stumbling Sure, by reason of time, that there's all kinds of books that you haven't had a chance to read that, that people will ask the question and, and they're there. And it takes time to read and to study and to be able to handle all that. I agree. And understanding of the Bible, my understanding of the Bible has changed radically from the time I was, you know, right. 18 years old to now. I mean, you know, not on some of the most basic principles, but on the understanding of, sure. you know. See, I believe that you all should have been like setting up, say, a dorm Bible study, calling in people to say they're not Christian to come. But then I think a more mature, studied individual uh, ought to be conducting that study. Uh, that, uh, you know, now, so I'm not saying it's not good for you all to get together and have studies among yourself and all, but when you call in somebody like, say, Lee and, and others, and, and here's somebody that I'm saying that a, a person who is studied has read a number of books on Christian evidences. If something comes up about the manuscripts, he knows about it. If something about the language, he knows something about it. Uh, he's, he's read various commentaries. He's heard a lot of sermons and all and studied and everything like that. And so he's much more apt to have the better answer, and, 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 he's, and not only that, you guys are in college, and you're concerned about passing your courses, and, it, you know, and, and every, you've got all that pressure on you, and so here you are young and learning yourself, and you're trying to pass college, and I'm saying that there needs to be the, if you can get people together there, then you need more mature people, and like in the church there. You need somebody to befriend them and get them interested in everything. Sure. And, somebody and, and see, as a church, we, we all have different things to offer. The young, the, the, old, the older people have the nice homes and the money, but they don't have the contacts with the young and they don't have the energy, okay? The, and they also, the older should have more information. The young are full of energy, they're idealistic, they're ready to go, they're willing to do it, but they don't have those nice homes, they don't have the money, and they don't have the same information background, they don't have the same experiences. So I'm saying that if the... If the older people there that have nice homes would have Bible studies in their house 
and, and, and have things like that you could tell them, let's go over to brother so-and-so's house and you're going to have refreshments and, and everything like that and we're going to get together and there's going to be 15 or 20 young people over there. What we're doing right here, you could do there at, uh, at Cookville and you'd have, I think you'd have young people there all the time at the Bible study and then have a, have an, a more mature person conducting the study and all, or if you actually a full-time person, you know, would be great. But, and then you get, you use the energy and the aggressiveness and all of the young people, but then the others use their money in houses and all. Well, you something like at the student center, though. You have to invite the whole student center there. So by the time you cram the whole student center no. in somebody's house... That's not good. You want to... The smaller settings are better. Just like... Uh, uh, now, you all wasn't there, but the Wednesday night before last, uh, Jason's dad uh, spoke, you know, with the adults, and he told us about the life centers that they were doing on Sunday night at the church there, that instead of meeting at the building, uh, Mark, they, they meet at various groups in people's homes where they can be much more personal in their study and everything like that, and they're trying to promote more of this kind of thing and all. And then the people that want to meet the building Sunday night can. And they got about 70 of them that do, but most of them meet out in various life groups. But no, if you, you don't want, if you got this person that's not a Christian, he would actually feel more comfortable with no more than, say, 15 or 20 people. And, and then have the study and let there be a number of them going rather than all of you trying to get together. But I'm saying that right there at Cookville, if, if four or five or ten or fifteen of those people would open up their homes and have studies and things like that, I guarantee you you'd convert people. I mean, it, and it'd be true there at, at any place. But in a church, you got so many people that are just apathetic and like, sort of like maybe some of them are a fire church. They don't like that. So well, like, what happens, uh, Brian, is. Yeah. And had no reason. They didn't even have a. You have uh, the. It, it takes sacrifice. I mean, just like uh, that thing of deny yourself and things like that and lose your life. Just like Mark's having a study next Friday, he's been having a study at his house. And he'll tell you that there's a lot of work. I mean, his, his wife has cleaned the place up. You know, anybody has come to him, the wife's going to clean the whole house up. They're going to provide refreshments. It's going to, they both have worked all week, both of them have. And, you're, and they're going to give up their evening. And then on top of that, whenever he conducts a study and all, then he's got to prepare. And so I'm saying there, there is a lot to it. And, and you, there, somebody's going to have to sacrifice some ball games and movies and things like that if that kind of thing's going to be done. No, he's talking about those people like that. You think if you, if you think it's the lack of understanding? Whenever they're bad, they're yours. Whenever they're good, they think it's just a lack of understanding. Well, I think they understand because they hear something. But I think it... What Jason said on that is true. They just look around and most are not doing it. It's just like uh, last Sunday night, that, uh, Sunday morning, I preached a sermon dealing with on Romans 12 on present yourself a living sacrifice. And, and, and it was, let's re-examine ourselves, get busy with the Lord and everything like that. Every single solitary person, you know, walked out and everybody shakes your hand. That was a good lesson. Everybody like that. So they understood what I was saying. That night, we had the same audience. We know, the same people that didn't never come on Sunday night, they weren't there that night. The same people that never come on Wednesday night, were, in fact, our Wednesday night tennis went down. <laughs> same, same people that walked out and said, hey, that was a good sermon. Well, they were there Wednesday night. And, and then um, I can get up and, and speak on other people doing what we're doing here and all. 
And um, it just doesn't, you know. It just, it's not, so I'm saying it's not that they don't understand, but I think as long as people look and they see that most people are not, then they just feel comfortable. It's like, well, you know, that's most, most are just not that way. It's like you're some sort of a religious nut or something yourself, you know. But um, if, if you can get more people to doing it, then it will promote even more. Well, that's like an endless cycle, yep. an endless doodle, if you can. As long as, as long as no one's doing it, and no one else is going to do it, as long as they're not doing it, no one else is See, I wish that, like in our services, we, we, we were locked into something that's, that we teach, like the Ten Commandments or something, that's two times on uh, Sunday and once on Wednesday. I agree that for a man out here that's working at a full-time job, that after he gives up two evenings, that another one is, is very difficult. But if we don't have that other one to give up, I would rather see us do away with Wednesday night and, and have studies in homes and say that, hey, let's all get together. On, let's, let's, uh, I'd like to see maybe a thing where you, you take Sunday morning and make it real meaningful. In other words, make it a little bit longer. Make the Lord's Supper much more important. Read the verses. Talk about them. Have more songs. Have more people involved and everything like that. And make a real meaningful experience. Now, but then on Wednesday, people I'd rather instead of coming to the building, meet in different houses, and see. Maybe your neighbor won't come to the building, but maybe he'll come in your house. And I'd say that if if all we've got is that one afternoon, then I'd rather see it spent that way. And I've. You know, I've been tempted several times over here to tell them, you know, if you, if you if you can't do anything except Sunday and Wednesday, then let's just put come to the building on, on Wednesday and, and meet in the houses and, and try to and let's try to reach somebody. Uh, Mr. Cook, on the what I'm thinking is my experience with churches is that I'm don't have a lot of confidence in the level of studying of some of the people. I mean, I wouldn't, like, I would bring people here to listen to you teach much quicker than I would anybody else. And I'm, you know. All right, one of the reasons people don't do is the very thing you're talking about, Mark. You remember Jeremiah, the statement he made, he, he got so disgusted he wanted to quit. And then he said that the words just burned in his heart and he couldn't, you know. It, it's like uh, playing, you, you play baseball, don't you? Um, Softball. If, if you got that pitch right there and you know you can get him, you can't wait to get up there. You just, you just want to get, get up there. If he's throwing that thing at 95 miles an hour and you have doubts when you hit it, you don't even want to go to bat. Okay? Same thing playing basketball. If you feel you play basketball, if you feel like you can make it, you want your shot, and you're going to work to get it. But it is say that you haven't played any ball in about six months, and you're rusty as a Dickens, and you know it, and so you don't particularly want to shoot. You say, let somebody else shoot. I'm saying that if the bottom line is what you're saying, if more people would study, and it takes time to do it and all, it would just simply, they couldn't, they couldn't keep it in. They'd want to get it out. That the, the, if the information is there and you know how important it is and you know yourself that I can answer those questions and, and, it, and that I've got something that, that can help these people increase their faith and everything like that, then you actually want to do it. Uh, the, the study, I honestly enjoy this study more than any of them I have all week. You know, that I mean, it's uh, on the one hand, you got all the work that goes with it, and I'm like, next Friday, I'll drive down to Mars. And it's work, and I'll be tired when I get by, but I'm saying, uh, by the same token, I enjoy it. And, and just the fact that he has a number of people there, that, that is an absolute turn on. You know, that you just, you just, you have the feeling that you can't wait 
to get down there and, and, and get at it. And I think the, the which, what's important to you all, I think in your age group, is the study thing. That uh, don't, you, you can't sit down and, and study it in a weekend. And, and you can't sit down like this book by Norman Geisler or Josh McDowell and some of those people. You don't sit down and read those in a night. You, you, you have to sit down and read them a little bit at a time so that over a period of years you've got a lot of them read. And same with the Bible. It's a big book. But if you just keep reading it a little at a time, the first thing you know, you, you've been through that time, thing 15 to 20 times. <laughs> but the studying, you know, it's just like all that's involved in, in becoming, getting through college. You know, you at first you look at all the material you're going to have to learn, and it's just like it would overwhelm your mind if you think about it. But then you study a little bit at a time, first thing you know, you're through it. You know, after four years. And I'm, I'm saying in the same way that, uh, that studying is something like exercise or eating, eating, that it ought to just go on constant. You know, and, and, and then you, the, and then if you, uh, teaching is great because when you start to teach, the vocalizing of something that you've studied puts it in your mind. Oh, yeah. Well, it makes you learn it and then it fixes it in your mind. It just, it just does. If, uh, the studies we have, like, we're, when we talk to teachers about teaching and we tell them that, uh, if you just get up there and lecture, they retain a certain percent and they forget all of this. If you can, if you can talk and get them to intermingle with it, and then they read it too, and you put all that together, they retain maybe 10 times as much as if you just get up there and talk about it, you know. And so I'm saying that the more you become involved in talking to others, you, you actually fix that in your mind so that you've got it. I mean, and you, you, that, I don't know any other way to do it. Uh, and, and what I found out on myself, and I don't know about Mark on this, uh, that uh, if I read a book, a very good book, but I don't use it in preaching or teaching or anything like that in any class situation or talking about or anything like that. No, it's not eight, too not long till it becomes very vague. I just remember it's a good book. But if I take that book and, and incorporate it into my teaching and preaching and use it and underline it and everything, well, then I wind up with those principles for good. You know, I've just, I've got them.